Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, the co-editors of the Men's Adventure Library, Bob Dice and Wyatt Doyle, discuss those weird men's adventure magazines. The discussion was part of a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the fantasy and horror fiction magazine, Weird Tales. This podcast was recorded on August 4th at PulpFest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Wyatt begins. Thank you. Well, we are in um, PulpFest debt and, and, and Mike's debt specifically because he's the one who, it seems it's become almost a tradition now where at the end of a talk he's like, next year this is the theme, like are you, what do you think, you want to do it? And invariably Bob and I will say, well if we're going to talk about it, why don't we do a book about it? <laughs> so um, the book that we're going to talk about today um, is our latest book, it is called Atomic Werewolves and Man-Eating Plants, and um, <laughs> it's available in a, in a hardcover and a softcover edition, and we do have a very, we, the, book, the book's actual release will be next week, so we have a very limited number of advanced copies that with a special uh, Pulpfest imprimatur, and um, come see us uh, tomorrow and Sunday and pick them up. Um, the, the theme of, of the book is... The men's adventure magazines um, of the 1950s, 1960s, and 70s, they, they cast a very uh, wide net. Uh, the stories that people know from them tend to be the more action-focused stories or the killer creature type story, weasels rip my flesh style stories. But in fact, the magazines were, the, the goal of, of the publishers was to simply appeal to a male readership, and that meant including just about anything that was considered to be of male interest. Um, so you would have tough crime fiction, uh, war stories, um, but you would also have celebrity gossip. You might have celebrity profiles. You might have consumer reporting. Um, cheesecake photos. Absolutely, cheesecake photos. And so <clears throat> the stuff that a lot of people who haven't gotten to read the magazines, what they've seen, sometimes it's, uh, there's, there's more there than people realize. And uh, the theme of this book is the areas where, as weird as men's adventure magazines could get, there were times when they, they got even a little weirder <laughs> and, and, in fact, uh, intersected with the Weird Tales, the Weird Tales magazine, both the Weird Tales magazine and just the idea of Weird Tales in general. Um, in fact, what we'll, we'll just go through some of these really quickly. These are some of the appearances in men's adventure magazines of some much beloved Weird Tales authors. Uh, this is a, a Ray Bradbury, Ray Bradbury's Rocket Man, of course. Um, this is a cover for True Weird. Uh, John Martin is the artist. And Bob, what, that, that's about a prophecy, that, the actual story. It's not, a, it's not a satanic... Yeah, that was like a Nostradamus kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, uh, what we find interesting is the fact that they didn't shy from this kind of weird imagery, even when it didn't tie in precisely with the story. Um, great Mummy, that's a great uh, Mummy illustration by John Leone, from, that's from 1957. And science fiction was not too far 
uh, a field for some, uh, for occasionally for men's adventure magazines, as you can see, for this cover of Real War, <laughs> which is from, let's see, when's that, that Real War? It's Vic Prezio, yeah, 1958. So Real War was not a science fiction magazine, but occasionally they dip a toe. Here's a, a really, I love this illustration, of Robert uh, Block's story, The Mandarin's Canaries. Robert Block again. Now this is an interesting, uh, particularly interesting piece. This is um, from Fury Magazine, 1961. It's a Robert Block story that's titled Curtain Call in Fury, but in fact, uh, our collaborator on this book, uh, Stefan Jamanowitz, has told us that in fact, this story is is Robert Block's story, Final Performance, uh, which was retitled for, uh, for Fury. And uh, the artist is uncredited, but we have, have no reservations about calling this one for Jack Davis. Um, Jack Davis from EC Comics, Mad Magazine. He's an interesting example to bring up because he's another great uh, representation of a horror aesthetic creeping into men's adventure magazines. And of course, EC Comics alone would guarantee Jack Davis a place in the horror pantheon, but he also did some great horror movie posters. And... Okay, Bob, what, tell me about this Man's Life cover. This is from um, 1962. That's an Earl Norum cover. And we've always called it the zombie cover. We, we've always called it the, the zombie <laughs> cover, but in the story, those are dead bodies popping up out of the river. They're not, a, they're not live zombies, they're just dead bodies. And then here we see in this issue of Peril um, from 1962, that's John DeWillow. Um, we've got killer robots. And, and there will be some more killer robots coming tonight. This is an issue, uh, anybody who was at our George Gross talk last year might remember this cover. This is uh, George Gross, it's uh, C from 1962. And that's just to show you an example of what I would, that could be a, a slasher movie poster or video box, and just to show that there was room for that in men's adventure magazines as well. Here are the covers uh, for, the, for the new book. That's the hard cover. That's the soft cover. We'll come back to those. Okay, the first story in the book, we're going to walk you through the stories uh, one by one to kind of give you a sense of, the, of just how different, uh, uh, what a different uh, selection of uh, subject matter was addressed. So this is action from March 1953. And this, it accompanies, it's the cover for the issue that includes this story, The Flag of the Stonewall Brigade. This is from Action Magazine, 1953. And it merges, this, this story merges two very popular men's adventure magazine subjects, the American Civil War and the Korean conflict. It fuses them into a single narrative <laughs> and then folds in a very unconventional ghost story, for good measure. <laughs> Um, Men's Adventure magazines regularly stacked popular elements like this um, as, a, as, a ways, as a way to sort of goose dusty plots. Uh, but even so, the appearance of a heroic uh, ghost brigade is, uh, is hardly, hardly typical. Yeah, in the story, that's the Stonewall Brigade, uh, Stonewall Jackson's brigade, the ghosts of, those, of, of that brigade show up in the Korean War to save a group of American soldiers who were surrounded by North Koreans. It's a wild story. And one of the things I learned when I was looking into this one is the Confederate flag, which of course is now so controversial, yeah, but that is not the flag that the Stonewall Brigade used. 
And in fact, it wasn't even the flag that most Confederate armies used. Um, but it's become the one that's become a symbol um, of the Confederacy. But I, one of the things I really enjoyed about the challenge that Mike Chomko gave us, and I thank him for that again, was looking through, you know, I, I have over 5,000 issues of different men's adventure magazines, but I, I don't look at them individually for that. I actually have a pretty good computer database, but trying to find stories that fit the Weird Tales mode. And so I was looking for things like ghosts. I was looking for uh, supernatural. I was looking for science fiction, robots, and things like that. And I was amazed, actually, about how many examples we found. And uh, I, th this one is unusual. It's, it, the magazine it was in, Action, was published by a guy named Adrian Lopez. And it, it was a very early men's adventure magazine. Um, copies are not that easy to find. You can find them, but it's, it's a good collectible. The next story in the book is, uh, appears in True Weird, which was a, a, a men's adventure magazine that did skew a little more to the weird, toward the weird, obviously. Um, anybody out there who remembers our cryptozoology anthology, we included this, uh, this picture and the, the accompanying story in that book. But it's not that, that's not the story we're talking about tonight. We're talking about when the vampire was captured. <laughs> now, it is definitely unusual to have a, uh, the, the, the way this story operates is it's less of an action piece and it really is a more conventional gothic horror, um, which is a little unusual for men's adventure magazines. But I mean, the idea of digging up, it's, it's based allegedly, like a lot of stories, allegedly based on a, a true incident um, and the idea of digging up an unusual, shocking, or, or violent historical event and retelling it for a contemporary uh, readership was pretty standard for men's adventure magazines. That was, they, those kind of pieces were always a big... Um, it, the thing that makes this a little uh, special is the fact that there's a, a supernatural creature involved. Okay, Vampires Rip My Flesh, <clears throat> um, Man's Life from March 56. Um, Which predated Weasel's Ripped My Flesh, by the way. <laughs> Weasel's Ripped My Flesh was on Man's Life, September 1956. Man's Life. And they, th that title, that, that, pre that format of title, appeared many, many times with just about any creature you can imagine. Um, there's just something about putting a, a, an animal name followed by Ripped My Flesh that just <laughs> flies off the shelves. <laughs> um, now the thing is, while men's adventure magazines trafficked regularly in killer creature horror, it wasn't necessarily viewed or even presented as horror per se. Um, animal attack stories emerged uh, as an extension of hunting stories and tales of outdoor adventure and survival that are taken to their logical or illogical extreme. <laughs> I mean, basically, if a creature walked, crawled, swam, flew, men's adventure magazine writers figured out a way for them to organize and attack. <laughs> Um, and, of course, men's adventure magazines would, would sort of turn up the volume on any story, any kind of uh, fiction they published. And so that's how uh, wilderness adventure essentially mutated into uh, what can be described as incognito horror fiction. Now, as you can see, the, that's the interior spread for that. It's a little less dynamic than the cover, although it does reproduce a detail from the cover. The, the, the one thing that we've run into when, with animal attack stories is often when they include a photo of the animal, 
It kind of <laughs> lets the air out of it. <laughs> okay, uh, Sport Trails. This is Sport Trails from spring 1957. And that brings us Island of Doom by Bill Wharton. Um, it's an odd story because it purports to be true, and it starts by telling a story of um, some adventurers who come across this, a beast that's not very clearly described. Um, they're, they're, they clearly don't want to be, the writer did not want to be pinned down to any particular creature since there is no creature that really looks like that or behaves the way the, the, the killer creature in the story does. Um, what this story actually does is it ends up splitting off into three sort of half stories. The initial story, which as that sort of resolves, they immediately reference two earlier encounters on the same island that are a little more bloody and, and result in, in more casualties. The interesting thing about it to me is the fact that none of those stories is really told in what you would call a complete, uh, in a complete accounting. It's sort of like you get a little slice of it here, and then you get two more little slices of it, and you kind of assemble it more in your brain, much, much like the creature itself. You're sort of working with the clues that they provide you, and it's also nice because um, it's typical of men's adventure magazines to take something small or almost insignificant or incomplete and really blow it up into something grander and more dramatic. All right, Man's Life again. Uh, also Will Halsey again. The Vampire Grip My Flesh is also by Will Halsey, a great artist. He's the one who did The Weasel Grip My Flesh as well. Now, uh, the story in this one, you might think it would be our, the cover, uh, a cover story, but in fact, it's our books, uh, paperbacks cover story. <laughs> Trapped by a man-eating tree. <laughs> uh, vegetation with a taste for human flesh has, of course, been a part of folklore the world over. I mean, uh, there are so many man-versus-plant stories in, in weird pulp fiction, in movies, in comics, in TV. I mean, in Weird Tales, Little Shop of Horrors is probably the most famous uh, these days. Um, but this story was written by, it's credited to Robert Moore, uh, it's actually Robert Moore Williams, uh, who is a very prolific author. Penn, we, we figured what, like about 20? He did about 20 science fiction novels, I think. Yeah. And tons of short stories, I think. was. Yeah, there. I can't remember how many at this point. He, um, was, a, he was a regular, uh, he made a lot of appearances in uh, Crestwood publications titles, like Man's Life and, and True Man's Stories. Um, and like this story, uh, a lot of his stories follow the as-told-to approach, which was very popular in men's adventure magazines. It, uh, it lent a certain realism to it, the idea that there'd, there'd be two people credited, such and such, as told to the author. Um, and it just was a way to add credibility to the stories. Well, one of the things that I like about men's adventure magazine stories, including this one, is you would think that it's just a silly story, okay? And Mad Ending Plan, it's got to be comic book silliness or something like that, but it's not, it's dark. A lot of the men's adventure magazine stories were definitely, you know, adult fiction, and the characters often got killed <laughs> or maimed in various ways, and it, it, it wasn't lighthearted. It was dark stuff. Which is ironic, because a lot of people who come to men's adventure magazines today 
they're amused by the over-the-top covers or the headlines, and so I think a lot of people presume that it's going to be a very campy experience, and sometimes it is, but never intentionally, which is something that I, I can't believe all of all of the MAM fiction that we've reprinted and the, the stuff that we've read. You never see, there's never winking to the, to the reader. There's never any kind, of, uh, any kind of camp, which, I mean, they're commit, it's committed all the way. No matter how outrageous, they're committed. Um, Cavalier magazine um, which brings us to one of the strongest men's adventure uh, connections which is uh, their reprinting of Manly Wade Wellman's The Song of the Slaves uh, Song of the Slaves first appeared in Weird Tales uh, in March 1940 um, one of many Weird Tales stories that made it uh, drifted into MAMS eventually um, it's a little, Manly Wade Wellman is a little unusual uh, a writer for men's adventure magazines. However, this is a story that turns on a theme of well-deserved comeuppance, which I think would have made it a very appealing choice to men's adventure magazine readers. There were certainly plenty of stories about characters who exacted some sort of vengeance, whether it ended up well for them or, or uh, if it ended up in death for them. But, uh, but yeah. And it's it's also one of the few involving slavery. I mean, the, the guy who's, who the slaves get revenge on in a supernatural way was a he was a slaver, and it's it's another dark story, and you feel good about the ending because the slaver gets his just desserts. This I just think it's incredibly interesting story and Wellman and some of the other writers who were reprinted in men's adventure magazines is that one of the other things I thought was interesting when we started to do this book is it's another thing that connects the DNA between pre-World War II pulp magazines and men's adventure magazines you know they had some of the same publishers some of the same writers uh, the same some of the same artists you know you know came into both realms and the publishers of men's adventure magazines, a lot of them had a, a, a fairly limited budget, and so reprinting old pulp magazine stories was not that uncommon because they didn't have to pay for it. <laughs> now, we'll, look, we'll just have a quick look here at the story's original publication in Weird Tales. And that's the illustration that accompanied it, which um, that's Harry Furman. And one of the things I found interesting as we were looking, comparing and contrasting the, the Weird Tales uh, version is the fact that the difference in the approach taken to the illustrations. This Weird Tales illustration is, I would say, it's classic Weird Tales. It's quiet. It's calm. It's menacing. Whereas the Men's Adventure magazines, the emphasis was on action, movement, a lot of realism. So here you have the same, same story, essentially. This, the, the version that ran... Uh, in, the, in Men's Adventure Magazine was actually a little bit shorter, which we think was probably trimmed for space, because there's certainly no content missing that seems relevant. Um, but essentially the same story with two very different approaches to, uh, to illustration. Now here's where this is, the next story is one that I, we were kind of surprised we were able to pull off, I think, which is the inclusion of H.P. Lovecraft's The Rats in the Walls, um, which certainly among his most famous and frequently reprinted stories. Um, 
originally uh, from Weird Tales in March 24. It's probably the, pulp, the, the, the story in this collection that has the least direct linkages to classic men's adventure magazine fiction. However, certainly there was no shortage of rats <laughs> in men's adventure magazines. Um, and cannibalism, which is another feature of the story, was another topic that came up in men's adventure magazines in various guises and various strains. So I think the key thing for me that, that we learned putting this book together, that I learned putting this book together, was the different ways, sometimes inventive, sometimes just like, oh, that's so apt, the ways that the stories that would be, the weird stories that were selected for men's adventure magazines were chosen I contend just as much for how neatly they could fit into a men's adventure magazine. And so the Lovecraft story, like I say, is, is, is kind of the most challenging fit, and yet there are still connections to be made. Okay. This is Adventure Magazine from August 1961, and we have a rather notable author in this one, too. The author of this story is Gardner Fox. Uh, as, as everyone familiar with Gardner Fox? Bob, can you give us a little on, on Gardner Fox? Or? Off the top of my head? Oh, never mind. <laughs> I, I, well, I know, you know, he wrote many novels under his own name and various others and, and dozens and dozens of short stories. And uh, one of them was, uh, one of my favorite uh, series that he wrote was uh, The Lady from Lust which was the answer to The Man from Orgy back in the day. Um, there's, a, there's a website now that's reprinted virtually all of his stories and novels that you can read for free. And I ask him, you know, does he have an estate? <laughs> this is not that we know of, so I guess they're reprinting them uh, without worrying about that. Yeah. But he wrote all kinds of stories, and he's really good. And his, DC, his work for DC Comics... Um, a lot of people know him from that. I mean, it, uh, the original Flash, Hawkman, uh, Doctor Fate, original Sandman, and I think that he he did he, a lot of comics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this story is it's spaceships, uh, a vengeful robot. I mean, it's it's again, it seems far afield for men's adventure magazines, but at the same time, as we mentioned before, stories about plotting payback, stories about revenge. Those were very familiar and most welcome in Men's Adventure magazine. So even though this is a very unconventional setting, um, at, the, at its heart, it is a Men's Adventure magazine story that's really not uh, out of place. And it has a really, really good twist at the end. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is Adventure from October 1961. Great uh, shark cover. That's Vic Prezio? That's a Prezio, yeah. yeah. And just because we had it, we figured you might like to see it without the headlines as well, because it really is quite a piece of work. And the story that we've included from this issue is The Hunted by Rick Rubin. Again, we see it's a story of, um, of robots, um, and in this case they're pursuing uh, a couple, a man and a woman, through uh, the wilderness. Um, again, an unconventional uh, notion for men's adventure magazines to have stories about robots pursuing people. However... Pursuit stories were very common, and uh, I think that it seemed like as long as they could keep it roughly in the neighborhood of what their readers were interested in, their readers were happy to, to, to have it. Um, 
And that, that interior illustration is by a guy named Bruce Minnie, who was one of the great men's adventure magazine artists, also did paperback covers. We happened to, to know Bruce before he passed away. And, uh, yeah, the book is The Man Who Painted Everything, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and when he and his, his uh, son-in-law, his son-in-law set me up for an interview with Bruce, I don't know, 20, I forget, years ago, some yeah, years yeah. ago. Uh, and the interview that I posted on my menspulpmags.com blog got a lot of positive feedback and it helps it helped Bruce's son-in-law uh, Tom, uh, Tom Ziegler uh, he decided hey I should do a book and he did and it's called The Man Who Painted Everything and it's I highly recommend it great book yeah Minnie's Minnie's was an amazing artist I mean so I mentioned uh, at the start of this that um, we worked with uh, Stefan Jamanowitz on this book um, I'm, I feel certain a lot of people here are familiar with his work as an editor. Um, and he brought up a really interesting point in his comments um, where he said uh, that three of the books, uh, three of this book's science fiction selections, The Man Who Couldn't Die, The Gardner Fox Story, The Hunted by Rick Rubin, and a third story which we'll, we'll conclude with, um, they were all first published in Adventure. Now, Adventure was a magazine with a pulp pedigree that goes back to 1910. Um, Adventure predominantly focused on daring and intrigue and tales of exotic adventure. Um, but in 1920, the magazine coined the term off-trail, and that was their designation for the occasional story that strayed outside the boundaries of realism. Um, adventure had pretty much scrapped the off-trail categorization by the 1960s, but these stories are very much in the spirit of why that categorization was created in the first place. Okay. Again, this is another George Gross cover on Sea for Men. Uh, you might remember this one from our talk last year. And this is, uh, the, the story in this issue is called The Werewolf and the Cowboy. And a lot of, there's, there's been, there's some thought that men's adventure magazines had really dynamic and exciting artwork that made up for their weaker storytelling, which... Sometimes is, is ac that's accurate sometimes, but other times the story is just as good as the artwork or better. And sometimes, like in the case of the werewolf and the cowboy, the story is pretty damn good. The artwork? <laughs> it's, it's not an ideal representation. <laughs> and it didn't cost the, the magazine very much to, to buy it. No. Okay, Adventure Life, uh, December 1961. Uh, this, is a, this is a story that's very near and dear to uh, the heart of my co-editor, um, The Mad Doctor of No Name Key by Peter Eldridge. I mean, is that... I'll say this. This was almost a cover <laughs> for our book. I said, boy, if that doesn't really just sum it up. Uh, but this is, again, based on actual events that have become... Notorious in the Keys. Legendary in the Keys. I, I lived near Key West and been there for several decades. And uh, down there, Count Von Cosell. Um, well, I'm sorry, I should say, just to give you a premise of the story, it was this, this Count who had a morbid desire. He claimed to be a Count. Oh, right, claimed to be a Count. Had a morbid desire for this young woman who 
really didn't seem to hold him in any particular esteem. Now, as a young Cuban woman who was, uh, I think she was 20 when he first met her, maybe 19. Anyway, he, he came from Germany to the Keys, claimed to be uh, both a count and an expert in x-rays. And the Key West Hospital at the time, which was fairly small as Key West is, they hired him to do x-rays. And um, Hoyos came in and she was having trouble breathing. Elena was having trouble breathing. He, he did some x-rays and he fell in love with her, became obsessed with her. He gave her, he decided he was going to, what she had was tuberculosis, by the way. He told her he could cure her tuberculosis with x-rays, which is not true, can't do it. Uh, but he gave her x-ray treatments, probably hastened her demise. After, after a couple years of knowing her, he courted her, but she already had a husband. Um, he courted her and, and she died. And when that she, didn't stop the count. No. <laughs> After she died, he went to the family and said, I want to build a special mausoleum for her in the Key West Cemetery. And they said, okay. So he hand-built this very elaborate mausoleum for her. They put the casket in, and unknown to almost everybody else, he came back one night, stole her coffin and her body, and took it to, he was, he was at the time, he was living in the, the body of an old airplane on a beach in Key West. He was, he was a weird kind of guy. He lived inside this plane, put her body in the plane, and kept it there for years, and he, he had, he, he believed and claimed later that he could bring her back to life with a with its magic combination of various kinds of chemicals and with electricity. So he kept her body in there. He didn't tell anybody about this. Um, but at some point, the family got suspicious and they went to his house, his plane, and found out Elena's body was... <laughs> was there, mummified. He had mummified her with various chemicals. He was arrested, and it actually uh, became this big cause celeb. It was, it was made nationwide news. And he was, there was a faction that thought of him as this romantic hero. It was the love that couldn't die. You know? he, he just loved her so much he didn't want to let her go. He, had, he got acquitted, much to the dismay of the family, although the family made sure that after he was acquitted, um, they buried her body in an unknown spot so he couldn't find it again. So after that, um, on another, uh, another night, he pulled up stakes, hooked his plane to a truck, and went up to mainland Florida where he lived, um, into the 40s, in, I forget what year he died, but before he died, he wrote his own story of Elenia and what he did with Elenia in Fantastic Adventures magazine. Do we have a slide of that? No, we don't have that one. 
the pulp magazine Fantastic Adventures. He wrote his own story, and he made himself seem like a hero. And that if they only would have let him keep her, he would have brought her back to life again. And so they really screwed up. Ugh. Then when he died, the cops went into his house because he'd been reported missing, and he hadn't shown up anywhere for a long time. They went into his house in, in, in uh, Crystal Springs, I think it was, and they found another uh, version of Elenia that he had made with wax and paper. And um, in both cases, um, of the body of Elenia, after the, they found her in Key West and took it away from him, and the case of that one that he had built in Crystal Springs, there was biological evidence that, that was disturbing. And that, <laughs> that, 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 that didn't make the news. Uh, yeah, a deeper connection that that made. That story of, of Count von Cosell and Elena has been repeated in a number of different magazines and a couple different books. And in Key West, it's so, it's so famous there uh, that a musical was written about it. And it was actually a damn good musical. I went to see it. It was great. <laughs> Dig, 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 dig. <laughs> okay, this is uh, quite, a, quite a cover. <laughs> uh, again, th- this is not the story in question. The story we're looking at is um, Her Body Belonged to the Devil by George Venner, uh, Man's Look, December 61. Um, really, a, a lot of the appeal of men's adventure magazines were the, was the escape from reality that they provided readers. And... Um, Key to the escapist entertainment is the thrill of danger, adventure, and sex experienced vicariously through the characters. Um, her body belonged to the devil is sort of, I guess it would have to be the men's adventure magazine equivalent of a, of a reader's confession type of story or a penthouse forum letter. Um, the thing that, that sets it up, that makes it worthy of uh, inclusion here is the fact that the, uh, the hot pickup that our protagonist uh, connects with ends up taking him to a, a black mass that just starts getting crazier and crazier as the fellow Satanists converge. And um, it's the stories written in a very heightened style, just packed with exclamation points and scare quotes. But uh, it's, it's a fun uh, look at how Men's Adventure magazine would take a, a basically a sex story and find ways to add a little something to it, add additional elements of danger. One of the minor... Uh... Men's Adventure magazine bits of trivia associated with that one is that the interior illustration is credited to Arnie Arneson. And you find his name in a, in a number of different Men's Adventure magazines credited as the illustrator. But if you try to find out who Arnie Arneson was, there was no artist named Arnie Arneson. There was an art director named Arnie Arneson who worked for one of the Men's Adventure magazines. And what we've basically hypothesized is that because you, you'll find the images don't, aren't consistent. You know, it's, you can see one that looks that like I'm, I've seen a number of them credited to Arnie that I'm sure is Hal Dodd, uh, and, and some others that I know the other artists. In but, the Lawrence Block book we just did, one of the illustrations credited to Arnie Arneson is very clearly the work of two different illustrators, sort of <laughs> stitched together. So right. that's that's really what got us being like, well, who is this Arnie Arneson? What's going on here? But Men's Adventure magazines never had a problem uh, doing things like that. It, it wasn't anything anybody ever challenged. All right, this issue of Peril, this is from December 1961, and 
It actually is the cover story for the story we've included in the book. Uh, the story is called Their Bodies Glowed with Fire. It's by Dane Marshall. Um, it's an unusual one, both because, obviously, it's, a, it's an alien and a cowboy, <laughs> which is uh, hardly typical. But there are a couple of aspects of this story that are kind of interesting. For one, it's, uh, it's told in the first person uh, by a Native American character they call, called Joe Rainwater. Um, it's a, a Native American protagonist is unusual for men's adventure magazines, but men's adventure magazines did tend to root for the underdog. So my guess is that, that they saw a Native American cowboy as a, as a good underdog character. Um, it's also a little unusual because um, the fact that it is being presented as a first-person story, they didn't use their beloved as told to, which would have made this story of a, of a cowboy's intimate relations with an extremely sexy alien woman from another planet. Um, it would have brought a little more verisimilitude to it, I think. Um, and, of course, the flying saucer craze of the 50s was still going quite strong uh, through the 60s. As you can see, that's the interior illustration. Still a great illustration, but, but the, boy, the color version really knocks your socks off. Okay, um, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, of course, looms very large. Uh, another Weird Tales author who appeared in Men's Adventure magazines. And this, this is um, Men from April 1962. And the story, uh, Sturgeon's story included here is called The Blonde with the Mysterious Body. Um, and it's a story of uh, voyeurism, which was certainly a popular subject in Men's Adventure magazines. And like a lot of the voyeuristic stories in Men's Adventure magazines, it has a, a dark twist uh, at the finish. <clears throat> Something that, um, that, that uh, Stefan Jamanowicz brought up in his comments, which I thought was uh, quite interesting, this story was originally published in Galaxy magazine. And, of course, Galaxy, a science fiction magazine, in Galaxy... The story was called The Other Celia, and this was the illustration that accompanied it. Uh, Stefan made the point of, that I think, is, I think is interesting and I think, it's, I think it's apt, that although men's adventure magazines didn't necessarily rewrite stories that they were reprinting that came from other types of magazines, what they could do was, as we saw with the Manly Wade Wellman piece, they could create an illustration that was more in keeping with what readers expected from a men's adventure magazine, or they could change the title. Obviously, The Other Celia is a great, mysterious kind of title, but uh, The Blonde with the Mysterious Body <laughs> is far more something that you'd find in, a, in the contents pages of a men's adventure magazine. That one's one of the most reprinted stories, too, by, by Sturgeon. By Sturgeon, yeah. Okay. I, I don't even know how anybody could walk away from this issue on a newsstand. I mean, there's so much deep weirdness going on here. I mean, okay, the artwork is by Sid Shores, Sidney Shores, who did a lot of comic book work. Um, but I'm just, I, I, since, since I first saw this cover, I've been trying to imagine what would I make of this if I saw it in this. I mean, what is going on here? It's so unclear what's going on, but it's, it's hypnotic. Um, is it a voodoo ceremony? I mean, is it a sex rite? Is, it, is he having a nightmare? I mean, it's... It, it pulls you in, and that was, the, that was the job of the covers. That's the job of the illustrators. Um, the story itself is, is definitely unusual. Um, foul play. 
it's told, it's, an, it's another first person um, narrative, narrative, uh, narrator who works chopping the heads off of chickens. And as he's chopping away, he's fantasizing about a life he might have if he could just get that pesky wife and mother-in-law out of his hair. I'll say no more, but if, if, that, if the illustration holds any appeal for you, uh, I think the story would be. <laughs> and it doesn't turn out well for me, as you can tell. <laughs> no. Okay. Peril Magazine, uh, September 1962. Uh, the cover story, Strange Cult of the Vampire Tarantulas by um, <laughs> Rick Manners. It's, it's part of a long uh, men's adventure magazine lineage. Um, tales of explorers, treasure hunters, adventurers who venture into uncharted territory and are confronted with, with greater and more terrible dangers than they could have predicted. Um, it's also a story that is part of a, a continuum in, in men's adventure magazines. What um, Stefan coined, coined the phrase, Dr. Moreau meets Dr. Mengele, where you've got these mad scientists, generally Nazis, either active Nazis or, or Nazis in hiding, who are performing bizarre experiments, uh, usually on um, gorgeous women uh, who are depicted in the, uh, in the artwork. Um, the thing about these is the emphasis here is, is more on uh, adventure and thrills than the specifics of the protagonist's torment. And I mention that because our next story takes us to the next level of these types of stories, which got a little heavy. Oh, I'm sorry, we should point this out too. Um, occasionally, men's adventure magazine stories would be illustrated with photographs. And in this case, this purports to be the protagonist of the story and, and the, the leading lady. However, this is actually a still from a film called Safari with Victor Mature and Janet <laughs> Lee that was, which Men's Adventure magazines did constantly. They would swipe photos from movies and drop them in as illustrations, claim they were news photos. Our, our book, Barbarians on Bikes, about motorcycle gangs in Men's Adventure magazines, Bob and I are both fans of biker movies. And as we're going through it, be like, Bob, this thing about a riot and this, that's from the Wild Angels. <laughs> He'd be like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, oh, this one's from the other. So it was a common thing. Um, I guess they could get away with it because this, the, they were publicity photos. Um, there was no rule that said they had to identify them as such. Okay, man's story, September 1964. Um, the term sweat mags gets bandied around a lot uh, when it comes to men's adventure magazines. Um, it was initially, uh, we feel it was used uh, as pejorative. It was a way to describe men's adventure magazines by people who, who disparage them. Um, but it's since become, it's been embraced by men's adventure uh, magazine fans. Now, we tend to use that term only for a subset of men's adventure magazines, the wildest low-budget titles that regularly featured cover art and stories featuring sadistic Nazis, torturing scantily clad women, and, and similar things that were, that were rather envelope-pushing at the time. In this case, the woman happens to be our friend Ava Lynn, was the model for that lady in the paintings by Norm Eastman. And as you can see, in, inside is a black and white reproduction. Ava's still alive and well and in L.A., by the way. Okay, so in the 1960s, cultural shifts and, and probably most importantly, uh, some notable court decisions regarding the definition of obscenity led to a relaxing of standards regarding explicit sexual content in the magazines. 
Um, so the story that we just saw that kind of dealt where I mentioned that, that Dr. Moreau meets Dr. Mangala kind of moved on um, into sweat mags. And then another thing that came into play with the rise of interest in the occult were movies about cultists, or movies, sorry, stories about cultists, Satanists, modern druids who uh, were still very interested in human sacrifice and particularly um, mostly unclothed women. Great These, artwork by John DeWillow, husband of uh, Elaine DeWillow, who was a, probably even more famous uh, artist, a paperback cover artist. All right, and now the last story in the book uh, appeared in Adventure Magazine, uh, 1966. Probably my favorite illustration in the book, Killer of the Cave. It is a post-apocalyptic adventure story uh, in which a small group of surviving humans are being picked off one by one by some savage beast, man, it's unclear initially, uh, and it's a little bit of a Ten Little Indian situation where it's like, we, as more and more of the suspects start ending, turning up dead, it starts, well, who is the killer? Now, the story's a lot of fun, but the thing that's really special about this is, to me, is the artwork, which is by Basil Gogos, who you may know as the cover artist for many, many, many classic famous monsters of Filmland covers. Uh, but Gogos began his career as an illustrator for men's adventure magazines. And what? I'm sorry. Steve Holland, you know, he's almost every men's adventure magazine artist's favorite male model. Uh, the, the female model is a woman named Joan Stein. I, I know that because before Basil passed, I had interviewed him and he ID'd her for me. This, I think, tell me if you disagree, and we're going to look at two other ones before we wrap it up. But these are two other uh, Gogos pieces that appeared on men's adventure magazine covers. And I think you'll find that this piece is probably the closest in terms of his style to yeah. what we saw in his famous Monsters yeah. uh, covers. Oh, and all, you mentioned Steve Holland. I mean, part of the reason Steve Holland is a legend, I mean, look at that, look at that expression, his pose. It's just perfect. I mean, that's, uh, Steve Holland, I think, made a case that he was a pretty damn good actor as a model. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a Basil Gogos cover. Again, it's a great cover, but it, is, it doesn't really look as much like the Basil Gogos style that we, that we know, especially the famous Monsters pieces. And this is another Basil Gogos cover, from, uh, which we did include in our Barbarians on Bikes. Uh. Now, one of the reasons I think why it included the covers in our presentation today is because the book, both the paperback and the hardcover, are lushly illustrated, which is one of the other things we like to do with all of our books, you know, not just depend entirely on the stories. Although, our other new one, uh, uh, by Lawrence Block, we, we reprinted the uh, book called The Naked and the Deadly that you will see if you come to our table. It's uh, stories by Lawrence Block that appeared in men's adventure magazines. And uh, although we lushly illustrated the hardcover, Wyatt had the idea of this time of doing a, a, a regular trade paperback edition for the paperback that's not so lushly. It has illustrations, but it it's has not, a few, has, yeah. not, not full color or lushly illustrated. They're not the focus. Not. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I don't think we have time for questions, unfortunately, do we? Yeah, okay. If anybody has any questions, we'll take them. We may or may not be able to answer them intelligently. <laughs> See, I guess, I guess our talk was Thank definitive. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. 
Learn more about the pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more at thepulp.net. Also, look for the Pulp Net on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.